0: I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Wurundjeri woman and acclaimed Australian author Tara June Winch. Her incredible 2019 novel, The Yield, has won the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction, the Christina Steed Prize for Fiction, and the Miles Franklin Literary Award. Tara joins me today from France, where she has lived since 2011. Tara, welcome. It's such a delight to speak to you. Now, we are both on the other side of the world from Australia, you in France and me in the UK. How are you finding this long haul of COVID 19 in Europe? How are you doing?
1: What I've done is tried to stay connected to what's happening in Australia through social media, you know, through all the connectivity we're bestowed with, and in a way, it feels
0: like I
1: dodged COVID. That I went along with the Australians and their experience.
0: As difficult as this world is, what I want to do now is leave it for a moment and shoot back to the start of your world. I want to talk to you about your childhood experiences. You were born in 1983 and you grew up on the New South Wales south coast. I imagine that's a very different life to the one that you're living now in France. What can you tell me about your childhood? What was it like?
1: I think our childhood was in many ways idyllic. We grew up in housing commission flat, Wollongong. And then we're given a housing commission, had the opportunity to have a housing commission house, which was a few hundred meters away from a beautiful beach in the South Coast. So we had that access to the ocean and sort of a sense of openness and freedom that was such a blessing. So, you know, as kids, we did lots of our activities, especially, you know, poor from a poor family, a working class poor family all our activities were outdoors, were bushwalking, were camping, were canoeing, ocean canoeing, river canoeing, were then developed into, you know, surfing for sport and, yeah, just being in the natural world, fishing. So in that way, it was really idyllic. On the other side of that, just physically being in that strip, it was just a strip, one street of Housing Commission where we lived. We were really made aware of how we didn't kind of belong in that part of the coast and i think i was aware of that difference and that that reality of life in such close quarters from a young age and i think that's what led me to writing in a way also we were a proud aboriginal family we always grew up as a proud aboriginal family would go back to country that was a huge part of my childhood But I also understood that I was the fairest of the family, one looking up at these experiences of my immediate family and extended family that I wasn't actually undergoing in terms of racism and everyday racism and a sort of sense of unbelonging. So in our family, we're very whole in a way, but also broken. You know, we did grow up around drugs and alcohol. It was constantly something that was whole and broken childhood. And I think I felt from a young age that I could see that the veneer and the fragility of that.
0: And was the divider of gender something that you were conscious of growing up? Did you feel or do you remember a moment where you thought to yourself, I'm being treated differently just because I'm a girl?
1: Not as a young child, no, because I had two older brothers that I'd just chased and sort of they made a path for me. You know, I was helping with the fire fire pit and and I was going fishing alongside my brothers and, you know, just trying to keep up and I don't think that they were, you know, nasty or mean to me on, on a basis of gender. They were nasty and mean to me because I was an annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when I think like most women globally, but when I hit puberty, of course, that all changed. I just was so aware of the male gaze as a child, because we're still children when we go through that stage in our lives, of puberty, of developing. And I just felt always like I was hunted. All women know this feeling of being prey, and especially growing up in Australia in the 1980s, 90s, where it wasn't frowned upon to treat women in that way and treat young girls in that way. And I think I've always shied away from my sexuality and having a sort of freedom of sexuality and celebration of the female body because of that, because it was sort of, it was something that made me feel very uncomfortable.
0: And do you remember what strategies or plans as a young girl you engaged in? If you felt that sense of being hunted, were there ways that you reacted to that? Are they with you still or are they part of the past?
1: You know, I because I dropped out of school, and you know, at seventeen, I I was looking for a sense of belonging, how I fit into the context of that street or my family first and foremost, as a fair-skinned Aboriginal girl, my street, my community, and more widely, especially as an a Wiradjuri woman, young woman off country, not growing up on Nourmang on ancestral land, so having that broken link to my culture, to my country and culture. And I wanted to understand how that kind of how I fit into the country as a whole. And so, at seventeen, I hitchhiked around Australia, and you know, went right up to the Kimberley, and you know, hitchhiked along the Nullarbor, and right up the east coast of Australia, and all over for a year before going to India. So I sort of put myself in situations where it was even more pronounced that situation where you you're vulnerable to that male power, and for me, it kind of forced me to be very street wise you know I had tactics that got me out of situations most of the time when I was in danger yeah I became very street smart I guess tougher almost matched their power I think I puffed my chest out and but I was I was leaving society in a way I was just sort of heading out on my own
0: In these years, you said the consciousness when you were growing up of sort of wealth and poverty side by side, which happens in a lot of, you know, coastal communities near Prestige Beach, you do get this uh, wealth and poverty butting up against each other, that that in some ways inspired your writing. Can you talk to me about that a bit more, how you developed a passion for writing, a consciousness of being someone who wrote? It was as if
1: I was watching a play around me. I really felt that I was there to watch the adults, the people coming in and out of the house, my cousins, my aunties, and how they interacted with each other and with the wider world. I always felt I was just watching the whole time. And then as a young kid, we spent a lot of time at the local Aboriginal medical centre. I don't know if they represent the community in the same way they did when I was a kid, but that was sort of a youth hangout. It was a safe space. And I think through painting, and we also engaged with kids from local juvenile justice were coming out on weekends to do painting with us too. I think through painting I was able to express this concern I had. My paintings at you know, 12, 13 were really focused on social justice were very badly painted, but the theme is really evident. And I think in that way I was able to shift that feeling of not belonging or belonging in a sort of dysfunction in that whole and broken thing. I was able to put it into art, you know, I was able to make something from that. Because my painting never developed past, you know, a really immature skill, I had to find some other way of, of speaking of understanding of working it out my world on the page and I think writing just came through that
0: tell me about your first novel swallow the air so you put this novel out into the world it received critical acclaim how do you remember that moment of you know first holding the book in your hand and then it's out there and people are reading it and reacting to it
1: sort of I was sort of wandering around and I came back to Australia from living on a goat farm in Surrey and I'd never been to Brisbane I realized in all my travels I'd sort of skipped Brisbane and so I turned up there and always when I'd go to a new city uh, the first place I would go to was a library I went to the state library in Queensland because there I could read books I could use the internet sweet talk a security guard or some of the staff to give me some biscuits and cordial cup of tea. You know, I could have a nap there as well. They always had couches. So libraries were my safe place. They were my anchor all all those years, feeling adrift. Yeah, I saw this notice and I was broke. I was looking for a waitressing job. I saw a notice that said write a short story, win cash prizes it was a thousand dollars for first prize 500 per second and I wrote my first story I'd ever written because I had been writing these letters and poems juvenile sort of poems all those years but I wrote my first short story and the story that came out was called swallow the air and it was actually ended up being the first chapter in swallow the air. It was a story of me with a girl's name, May, me and my brother, Billy, and Billy's name was intact, and a day at the beach, but with everything that we understood of our beach on a deeper level and our family and in the context of Australia and our culture. The second prize. I was on a bus when they rang and told me, and I was screaming on the bus. And uh, (laughs) then at the ceremony, they didn't give it to us on stage, but they gave us our checks in the foyer. And I sort of was done with it. I thought I felt so proud actually that it inspired me to go back and finish my studies and enroll in Indigenous studies at Charles Sturt University. So it gave me something, it gave me a fire that I could actually do something with my life. Ten months later, or maybe a bit less, I got a phone call from. An incredible editor at University of Queensland Press, her name is Sue Abbey, and she actually started black writing, Indigenous writing in Australia. She published Langford Guineby, she published Arlene Morton-Robertson, she started the black writing series in Australia, and she contacted me because one of the judges for the short story prize had passed on my story to her. We had a couple of months for the, until the David Unipon Award, which is for unpublished Indigenous writers. We had, yeah, like eight weeks until the closing for that and she encouraged me to just develop that short story into a manuscript and rang me every day and pushed and pushed and pushed and knew I was sleeping on friends' couches and knew that I was uneducated, I'd never studied literature, I hadn't finished high school, like my parents hadn't finished high school. And she, as this amazing, educated woman, saw something you know really that was like my first sort of situation where someone really really advocated for for me and really pushed me and believed in me I'm gonna cry so sorry
0: it's fine absolutely fine
1: and um we got the manuscript in the day of I remember I I was and I was hitchhiking up and down from Lismore to Brisbane to see her got it in and won the Uniapon a year later after the Short Story Prize. So I had a publishing contract then at 20. When it did come out, that book form, by the time it came out, actually, I was a single mother. I'd had my, my baby and was still studying Indigenous studies. It was, it was almost like I was in two worlds as a published author but also as a struggling young single mother so it was very weird. I remember going to festivals in that first year and, you know, with a baby on the hip and sort of going to enter a green room and having people be like, oh, no, 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 this is not where you're supposed to be. It was sort of incidental, being diminished incidentally because of what it must have looked like. And then a couple of years later when it was part of the curriculum, um, when I was on curriculum, and has been for almost 12, 13 years, that was insane. That was insane to me because I hadn't finished high school and yet a few years later it was a prescribed text at my old high school. You wouldn't believe it in a film. (laughs) Uh, You wouldn't believe
0: it except it definitely happened. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves Of course, as well as critical acclaim for your first novel, you had to grapple with some incredibly difficult media. An Australian commentator pursued a very ugly line of questioning around the background of prominent Indigenous figures, including you, and basically he used the line of attack that anyone who has a lighter skin colour can't truly claim to have faced racism. You were a debut author in your 20s and these were very public attacks by an older man who had a lot of power in his hands. How did you view that? And is there anything from that period that you'd want to share with other women about how to, you know, deal with that kind of pressure?
1: I think it broke me. You know, it didn't anger me enough to fight back. It just actually broke me, because of course I, you know, swallow the airs about a young Aboriginal girl who grows up off country, who some people see as Aboriginal and some people see as white. It's and I every day I wake up with white privilege because of the, my fair skin. I understood that. I explored that in an entire novel, but it didn't mean that I wasn't an Indigenous person. That I didn't come from a proud Indigenous family. It broke me, Julia. Who was in New York trying to become a great writer there, a great writer, and had this great opportunity. You know, I'd won this international prize and was really working on my craft there. And I just thought, oh, my country hates me. My country doesn't want to hear from me. What's the point? And I felt, what have I done wrong? I've just lived my truth. And it doesn't fit neatly into your idea of, and I say your, because it was a, there was a larger response of racism around that. It was the, It gained support in the Australian media and in the public perception of race. And I just thought, what right do you have to dictate who I am? Why should that offend you that I'm trying to explore these details, the significance of, of growing up in colonised Australia? You know, what is so offensive about me? And it was obvious that they hadn't read my book. They hadn't dug their heels as a journalist and gone and seen my father or my aunties who had been in children's homes, you know. It just, yeah, broke me, Julia. I didn't gain anything for me, any fire, actually, in terms of my voice and speaking up for myself, I actually. And I know that we should as women in those situations where someone's challenging us and and putting us down that we're supposed to stick up for myself, but I couldn't. I don't know. I think I was 24 and just still a single mum in a foreign country and I just didn't have it in me. So I pulled out of the racial discrimination court case that led to the change in the Racial Discrimination Act. I pulled out of that. I was the only person to pull out of that, claimant to pull out of that. But because I felt that I felt I was—I had no strength at that point to go through with it. I couldn't bear it. I just wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to focus on that person. I wanted to focus on what I was always trying to say. So I just kept working. I wish I was stronger. I wish I'd had more agency. But I was only just sort of, I was still trying to prove myself just as a, as a writer and, and especially as a mother. So I didn't feel... I just didn't feel strong enough, Julia.
0: No, I think obviously yours was uh, such a particular and such a publicly exposed incident, but I think lots and lots of women uh, listening to you speak would be reflecting about a time in their own lives where that wasn't their moment, you know, that they didn't have the the ability to push back or fight back then. They look back on it, may, maybe regret it, but uh, it's just... One of those things, you know, as uh, women as people, I don't think every moment we can fight every battle. There are just sometimes when you can and sometimes when you can't and they're the important moments for others to come in and do what they can to support. It shouldn't shouldn't always have to be you in the middle of it that does the pushing back. it can be others. and I hope you do feel that some people came to your support at that time.
1: Yeah, I do. I felt like what can I contribute that these amazing Indigenous women that were involved in the court case couldn't. It was at a point where I backed out within the case that I just felt that they had it, they were capable, they were on the ground and it was okay and I was given that blessing to step back and they understood. I think it's okay to know when you need to pull back from the fight and make space for other women to lead.
0: Yeah, and we should, for those who aren't as familiar with the incident involved, there was this material written by an Australian commentator and there was a case taken under the Race Discrimination Act, which was successful. Now, you did keep writing, and thank goodness you did keep writing. The Yield was one of my favourite books of last year. I loved it. And one of the things I particularly loved about it was the incredible yet subtle strength of the female characters who, despite not always driving the story as narrators, ended up being pivotal as the story developed. Would you describe yourself as a feminist and does that influence the way you portray women characters or do you see it somewhat differently to that?
1: Yes, I am a feminist. I've always been a feminist. My female characters, I think, are sort of holding up the sky. They've got real backbone and just like the females that I grew up with, they were tough because they had to be. But they also, I think, are aware of their position in society and are always sort of, I think, pushing back. I think they're all authentic women characters. Women hold indigenous communities many communities together i mean it's in the it, it's in that term mother they are the foundation for so many families and i feel that my women characters even though i haven't perhaps centered them in the narrative in the yield you know they're just left of center many of them but i feel as if they're the glue in your story they're the foundation they're holding the story together in a way that is true to life and that is almost like a watercourse. It's sort of the way a river runs through land. It's really this sustaining part of a, of a family tree, of a song line, of,
0: of a bloodline. You write so movingly about language, voice, belonging, And I know that in terms of your own activism, you've been a driver of Share the Mic Now in Australia, which is a program where First Nations women take over the Instagram accounts of well-known non-Indigenous women for a day. Can you talk to me about how you see those questions of language and voice and belonging and reflecting that into what we need to do better as feminists so that it's not white feminism but rather a movement that includes all women and is a movement aimed at making life better for everyone.
1: Yeah, so I think with Share the Mic, well, first of all, you know, as I said during COVID that I was trying to stay engaged with Australia and so I was always watching what was going on with social media and spent a lot of time on Instagram. Um, from France, and I just saw this, you know, quite A list Australian celebrity write something on Instagram that was to the effect of, Hey, ladies, nail salons are open again. Let's all get our manicures while we watch the world burn. It was really dismissive. It felt really dark to me. And I thought, What is that really sort of that apathy and that ignorance? Of what's happening on, on in global issues is that really what's being fed to young women? Is that the influence that social media is having? This is this main communicative tool in Australia, and it's it's a joke. It's just about putting the foot on the pedal, but and just really aware of our First Nations people protecting themselves and not having to to exhaust themselves and. Be the ones always pushing and fighting for change needs to be allies, need to stand up.
0: I want to ask you about Indigenous writers, and it's actually the first of the concluding questions. I always come to a set of uh, standard questions towards the end of the podcast, the first of which is putting a statistic to my guest. But when I went thinking about a statistic that I would put to you, what actually came up so clearly for me, is that in Australia, we lack meaningful research on many issues affecting First Nations women, particularly those in the creative industries. And I know that there are projects up and running to change that. But I did want to ask you, do you see that the voice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women is making progress, that there are more writers, more creatives. I accept exactly what you're saying, that the burden can't fall on them. But in terms of their creative work, do you think that there are more voices out there now?
1: Yeah, I think the burden can't fall on them, but we need to have a space for our voice. So I think it's a an issue of stepping aside and making that space. And honestly, in the last couple of years in the literary industry, it has changed You know, when the yield was just about to be bound, I think, I was in Australia and I was heading to the airport in Melbourne and I went with my agent. She said, oh, I'm coming in because I need to show you something. And we went in there and, you know, the airport bookstores and she said, see that? And we pointed up on the top ten, you know, wall that they have there and she said, see that number one (laughs) at the airport bookstore, you know, which is hallowed ground. And it was, I remember it was Jane Harper, the, the dry (laughs) and that's where I want your book to be. Do you think you can get there? I was like, oh, no, no, no. Because when I brought out Soil the Air, we were never in airports. We were relegated to the Australiana section in most bookstores with the maps and the books on Australian birds. Can you imagine that, that leap in a decade to getting there on the airport number one? was so unfathomable to me even before the book was coming out in that lead up. Because I my last um, sort of interaction with the industry was having those really pertinent memories, you know, being slotted on festivals at lunchtime when everyone's eating lunch, or when everyone's packing up and going home the last slot of a of a festival day, and having us putting us in the smallest tent and having a crowd of fifteen. I remember that. That's that's how my career started. So it's changed commercial publishers have realised what Mugabala Books and UQP have realised for decades, that we are powerful, these stories matter, and we just needed the industry to come along with us. There's still a way to go. Like I've had these conversations all, all this past year on the back of that success, that commercial success of having my book. How could we do that again, these big publishers, the big five coming to me? Because they can see that they can actually sell books. They're like convinced now that they, they can actually make revenue, which is sad, but they need to change internally. They need to change structurally. They need to have set up a system where actually Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers can trust you to publish our work. Like they can trust Makabala and they can trust UQP, where they have Indigenous editors where they have Indigenous publishers, where they can feel, you know, culturally supported in a cultural, culturally sensitive and correct way. Part of the industry that I think needs to, a hidden part of the industry, but I think as that changes, we're going to have more and more and more and more. You know, we'll ha- we should have half of the, the bestseller list. We should be there in the top five of the top ten. Because our stories really matter. These are your, our original stories. These, are, these matter to all Australians. I just want to see the change. People are so tired. People, think about people like Marsha Langton who are just, I can't imagine her exhaustion. And, you know, we had her on Share the Mic. She was on um, Celeste Barber's Instagram page, which is millions, you know, all Hollywood celebrities. So she took over this, I think she's like one of the top, top uh, Instagrammers from Australia. She took over her Instagram for the day, and we had this gorgeous archival photo of uh, Marsha during the civil rights movement in America. And we had our own sort of response in Australia that I think people aren't aware of with the freedom rides and, and the marches for inter- Aboriginal rights. And there's this photo of, of Marsha and the fighting for land rights with the protesting in the streets. And it's gorgeous, and I just it's been a long road for our elders and the people we owe so much to that have done so little and that we carry on our backs you know one of the lines that marcia shared she just said why don't people care about us why is this such a dismissal i don't understand why people don't care why is that how do you get to the root of the root and the bud of the bud of that how do you get how do you change apathy i should ask you julia as a politician <laughs>
0: That would be a long conversation (laughs) that we might not be able to do now, but we need to have it one day. But if I may, I do need to return to my podcast questions. What's the worst misogyny you've ever had to deal with?
1: As soon as I entered the industry, and, like, I think it was one of the first reviews that was comparing my writing. It was Melville-like. Obviously it's it's sort of a compliment for some people, the, the the writing style was Melville like, you know, or the author of Moby Dick. And I just thought, who's that? Like, I just, it's so, why are we compared to white male authors? And that, that was sort of the industry that I was around in 2006 with Swallow the Air and festivals for years, is that it was always, we weren't as good as non Indigenous writers. We, are, For sure, that was hands down true. We definitely weren't as good as white, non-indigenous male Australian writers. You can bet your bottom dollar, and you are nothing compared to the white male international author that we we grew up with. Them going, you know, you remember this that people were insatiable about those writers. I don't have to name them because they come to your mind when you think of a writer in the jacket and the smoking and and the misogyny. So, yeah, I think actually just being a writer to the left of field, I was aware of the misogyny of the industry and that the people that were sort of running shop were white and male, well-educated, using words I had no idea of, and those that were on award boards and all that kind of stuff, those who were really controlling the industry. It's changed. It's changed because like Indigenous communities, we've got female-led leadership within publishing. It's very female in the power positions in publishing these days. And I think, our, you know, 60% of women, it's 60% of women that consume fiction. So women are women reading women's stories, seeing the power in the female writer. We're fine, like as <laughs> I don't mean just I'm sure there's still room and there's in the industry for change and to get better and, and more equal and that's the great work of the Stella Prize. was It was incredible with that in terms of looking at and we needed that when it started a few years back in terms of looking at the, the disparity between male-reviewed books and female-reviewed books in the media and also they do the Stella card in terms of what female books are being taught in schools. I think we are good. We're winning all the big prizes, and we're definitely conquering fiction to conquering that top ten. But there is still that residue of when there is a, a non-indigenous male writer with a book. We kind of there's this I've noticed this readership that gets a little bit overexcited because they're kind of a rare thing now. But yeah, I definitely still remember the misogyny of the industry, and I can definitely see how it, women have really pushed for the change and see that shift and change. I've seen it. What we need now is something on the same level with Indigenous writing and writing coming from non-binary persons and um, more marginalised communities to make sure that the actual story of Australia is really being read, that there's different fabrics of our story of really being not just read but because we're not pushing down one single story down a throat, but having that ability to be out there by commercial publishers, by the industry who put those books on to the front of catalogues and put those books into giving enough space in in the media for for review and and into the curriculum and things like that. And also to recognise that, you know, English isn't the be-all, end-all language that tells the story of our country. You know, we've got communities where English is the third, second, fourth, fifth language of these In these communities, so it's a foreign it's English is just as foreign to our land in in describing our land and our lives, incorporating more bilingualism into publishing the way Magabala books and I do, where you've got English and language side by side on the page. I think that's going to be the future of our our publishing and needs to be We've got actually a book that came out this month by Anita Heiss, who's a Radri woman. And the title is In Wiradjuri. There's no English title on the front cover. And that's brought out by one of the big five publishers. So I'm in the background doing what I can. But this is sort of the future of publishing. If you had all the power
0: in the world in your hands for a moment, what would be the one thing you'd change for women? If you could only change one.
1: I would definitely have access to financial education and general education for all women. Financial education is so important. I didn't grow up with that, and I I suffered for it for that. And you know, if, if we're talking glo- on a global context, financial education is is really key in terms of having independent and autonomous lives. But before that, I would change men. I wouldn't change women. I would change that men are a tender and empathetic, and that are brought to justice for their crimes that they they aren't misogynistic, they don't hate women, women are not the lower caste in the world, that women felt safe when they walked out of their homes and they felt safe when they came home. And until you have a place where you can feel secure financially, because when I was broke, Julia, I didn't write a word. Poverty is not romantic. like There's no romance in, in poverty as an artist. I didn't write a word. I was just trying to put food on the table and keep the rent paid. And that doesn't involve writing. That involves working as a cleaner or whatnot. So having financial literacy and access to education and having a feeling of being safe is the foundation on which we can achieve all the other
0: stuff. Virginia Woolf says, for it would seem her case proved it, that we write, not with the fingers, but with the whole person. The nerve which controls the pen winds itself about every fibre of our being, threads the heart, pierces the liver. Tara June Winch says.
1: I think it's true. To write in a way that you can um, really speak to people, that you can touch people, is to write with the whole body. It is to write with your ancestors in your mind is to write with history and and hope of of becoming. That's true, but I don't agree with piercing the liver. I think the liver, and this comes from a sober writer, so I think the liver should be guarded and protected at all costs, like the manuscripts. (laughs) Everything else is right there.
0: I like that. Thank you so much for a moving, deep conversation. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Julia. You've been listening to a podcast of One Zone with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. If you want to learn more about our work, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website and sign up to our updates. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and James Miller with Kings Online with editing by Nick Hilton. If you liked what you've been listening to, we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own.